Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. What happened to the opioid crisis? Did it go away or have we just been so focused on current events and health concerns regarding coronavirus that it's kind of taken a little bit of a back seat? Well, today I want to welcome back to the show our guest, Dr. Michael Jaffe. He comes to us from San Diego, where he ran the Department of Pain Management and was a staff physician in physical medicine and rehabilitation at Kaiser Permanente for over two decades. Dr. Jaffe moved to Hawaii in 2017. He's in private practice with the Hawaii Brain and Spine in Kailua, and he's an associate clinical professor at the Western University of Health Sciences. He contributes to many peer-reviewed journals and wrote a book on golf and low back pain called Play Golf Forever. He's currently serving on the Hawaii Medical Board and is affiliated with Adventist Health Castle Hospital in Kailua. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jaffe. Hi, um, thank you, Dr. Kozak. Uh, I really appreciate you inviting me back on your show to have a conversation about the prescribing of opiates for pain management. Well, and it's a really important topic that I think used to hit every headline all the time. And despite the fact it may not be the headline anymore, it has not gone away, and it's still a serious situation. But, you know, when we look back on the last several years, a lot of folks might have heard about some of the lawsuits going on against certain companies. How did we How did we ever get here? Well, uh, thank you for asking that question. First of all, um, you know, opiates can be wonderfully effective for pain management. However, they can also lead to uh, addiction and death if used improperly. In fact, um, opiates are the number one cause, a leading cause of death uh, for people under the age of 50 in the United States. So it's definitely a problem, and we often look back, how, how did this problem get so far out of control? Um, what I can tell you is that um, in the early 1990s, there was a governing body called the, the Joint Commission Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations who deemed pain as a fifth vital sign, asking doctors, especially primary care doctors, to throw a pain score in with just taking their temperature, their pulse, their respiration, and their blood pressure, uh, and to treat the pain. Uh, fortunately, doctors didn't really have a lot of knowledge on exactly how to do that, yet they were under the gun to do so. Um, at the same time, uh, Purdue Pharmaceuticals was uh, rolling out a long-acting oxycodone medication called OxyContin, and the FDA gave them the okay to say that maybe using a long-acting opiate is less addicting. And uh, a lot of the marketing, however, kind of transposed that, saying it was less addictive, uh, kind of leading doctors uh, under some false pretense. At that time, um, pain management doctors, we thought that the chance of addiction was only like 4% on anyone who started on long-term opiates. Of course, now we know it's higher, somewhere between 25 and 29% chance of substance use disorder when started on chronic opiates. So... Um, in summary, however, I, I really have to say it, the doctors are the ones who had the pen or the keyboard, as it is nowadays, and we were the ones, you know, with leniency practices in overriding for prescriptions. Well, I remember that fifth vital sign, and it was right around when I was in medical school and in training, and that was something that everyone was told. You know, we weren't assessing patients' pain as well as we should, 
And one of their biggest fears when entering hospitals or going somewhere is that they would have pain, that that's still a major fear that people experience. And so when people started prescribing some of these medications, you alluded to the fact that we really didn't have the tools and knowledge to do so. What are these different types of medicines? And, you know, they all sound very similar. Are some stronger than others? Uh, they certainly are, and um, you know it's really an interesting look uh, originating from the opium plants uh, brought over from Asia, and then in the mid-1800s in the U.S., the creation of morphine to help control pain. Um, so opium is from the uh, poppy plant, and the naturally derived opiates are morphine and codeine, which we still prescribe today. The remainder of opiate um, are either semi-synthetic or synthetic. The shorting-acting act, opiates that we most commonly use would be codeine that you might see in Tylenol 3, number 4, hydrocodone, such as Norco's and Vicodin, oxycodone, which we see in Percocet, morphine, of course, hydromorphone is Dilaudid, which is a strong analgesic you might get in the emergency room, oxymorphone, Opana, and one called Tramadol. And then some of these... Opiates have been converted to long-acting opiates, such as MS-Contin, OxyContin, Zohydro, which is long-acting hydrocodone, Methadone, which is a tricky drug because it has a long half-life of about 36 hours, yet sometimes its pain management is only four hours, so it can sneak up on patients. Fentanyl patch, which is a medication, strong opiate that goes through the skin into the bloodstream that lasts for three days and a buprenorphine patch, which can, can last up to seven days. Those are the most commonly prescribed medications that we use in this country for pain management. Now, you mentioned that the chances when you're put on chronic long-term pain management is up to, you know, almost a third of people could potentially develop a dependence on it. Which one is more likely to be the problem, the short-acting or the long-acting, or does it depend on the individual? You know, it really depends on the individual, and really the bottom line is they all have addiction potential. They all can be habit-forming and lead to substance use disorders. So um, we know that when patients have acute pain, we try not to start them on a long-acting medication right off the get-go. You start with the short-acting and then consider uh, converting over. But the bottom line is that I consider them all equally addictive. Some of the problems with the longer-acting opiates is they're deep. It's not the opiate that's different, it's the delivery system, let's say the pill. And if people tamper with the pill, they can get a long-acting dose in a very short amount of time, which can be especially dangerous. So with some of the longer-acting medications, if they're crushed or they're put in some other format and they're meant to be extended release, then that changes that pharmaceutical composition of it in some way so that you get a higher short-acting dose of a supposedly longer-acting medicine. Is that right? That's exactly, that's exactly right. Now, when we talk about treating acute pain, that might be post-surgical pain if you've had a procedure done or where you've broken a bone or something like that. What would be some of the reasons why someone might be on it long-term? And has it been shown to be effective for those conditions? I know a couple of years ago they did a study that looked at chronic low back pain and said, you know, opioids are never really been proven to be super effective for the overall treatment and management of chronic low back pain. Short-term relief maybe, but long-term management, not so much. Are there other reasons why people are taking these that maybe they shouldn't be? 
Well, you, you bring up a very good point that we know that the uh, opiates work very well for acute pain, um, but there's very poor studies uh, showing that opiates are really beneficial for the long haul. Um, most of the studies with opiates for chronic pain show less than a 20 or 30% benefit, uh, which is modest at best. And a lot of these studies were only carried out to a year, and many of them funded by the pharmaceutical companies that produce these medications. So we really don't have good studies on the amount of opiates to use for chronic pain and whether they're either truly effective. And you are absolutely right. There was that JAMA article in 2018 showing that for back pain, the use of morphine was no more effective than just using a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory like uh, ibuprofen or Motrin in combination with Tylenol. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and you're listening to The Body Show. I have got Dr. Michael Jaffe on the line, and he has decades of experience in pain management. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the ways in which the state has tried to regulate the use of some of these medications and what are some of the efforts that are still underway to help us appropriately treat people who have pain, not restrict medicine when it's needed, but also not set some people up to wind up using medicine long-term in a way that might not be the best for their overall health. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Ekahi Health, Ulupono Initiative, and The Hub Coworking Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with Dr. Michael Jaffe on the line. He is currently practicing with, affiliated with Adventist Health Hospital in Kailua at Hawaii Brain and Spine. And we were just talking right before the break about the different types of medications that are out there, some of the indications for why they would be used. And I did want to touch on something earlier you mentioned. Tramadol, otherwise known as Ultram, is considered in the opioid category. It also is kind of considered in the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory category as well. It kind of straddles both of those areas. Is that one of the medications that might help some folks who might be on medicines long-term for pain? Can that be used as an alternate, or does it really have the same kind of potential as the other opioids in the category? That's a good question, and I think a lot of clinicians are confused about the true definition of what, what tramadol is. I can assure you it's derived from, uh, it's a pure synthetic opiate. Uh, it is absolutely in the opiate class of drugs, and it you get withdrawal if you stop it abruptly, and um, it's a weak opiate, so it's safer to use than a lot of the others. It does have addiction potential. Um, it has some serotonin effects, some SSRI effects, so it can raise serotonin levels for individuals who are also maybe taking uh, antidepressants, and it can lower your seizure threshold. So we do like to use it in pain management because it's uh, less dangerous to use. Um, there's some studies showing that it, for people who have diffuse widespread pain, it can be quite effective. Uh, but it is an opiate, and we have to be careful with its use. Important to notice because a lot of people feel like that's like a step down from their 
codeine or hydrocodone. And technically, it might be a weaker opiate, but it's still in that category. That's why it's considered a controlled substance and requires certain types of ways that it gets prescribed, which gets gets to the other question. The states tried to do some regulation of this. And a couple of years ago, they passed a Senate bill that was really trying to promote safe, appropriate prescribing of medication and a tracking of that medicine. So someone couldn't see three or four different providers in three or four different days and have nobody recognize that there's another provider prescribing. So that initiated the required use of the PDMP, the Pharmacy Drug and Monitoring Program. What are some of the state efforts that have really had an impact on the use of opiates? And has it has it benefited people? Have we seen a reduction in inappropriate prescribing while maintaining appropriate use? Well, Hawaii Narcotic Enforcement Division actually did a good job coming up with some um, guidelines to help guide physicians to be more judicious in the way we prescribe and monitor our patients on chronic opiate therapy. Um, one of the smartest things was putting uh, patients on a uh, no more than a 30-day maximum prescription limit for opiates. So um, you can't get a two- or three-month supply, a one-month supply, but patients are followed quite closely. I use a 28-day supply uh, for my patients because that way refills don't occur on Saturdays and Sundays. Oh, that's so smart. Month. Yeah. We've all had that happen, yep. Yeah, right? Uh, that's a 5 p.m. call on a Friday night we're very aware of. Um, also, the Narcotic Enforcement uh, Division, they uh, labeled the pharmacist to have a corresponding liability, which means the pharmacist is also liable if there's bad outcomes with overprescribing of opiates. So it's kind of a bit of a check and balance system uh, where the pharmacists actually contact the physicians just to uh, make sure that this was the prescription they were writing. Uh, so there's kind of a check and balance on, uh, on leniency or, or mistakes in writing prescriptions. Um, all physicians who write for opiates need to have some sort of written policy uh, about how they're going to uh, dispense uh, prescriptions for opiates, as well as a patient agreement so that the patients understand the risks involved with taking opiates and the consequences involved if there's aberrant behavior uh, by the patient with the opiate use. And as you mentioned, lastly, that prescription drug monitoring program, which is an online um, database of all prescriptions for opiates and the controlled substance of uh, in the state that are written and the physicians, we can just log on very quickly and check to make sure that the patients are getting their opiates from only one physician, uh, not doctor shopping and, and you know, not taking, uh, you know, filling medications that they're not supposed to be on. Um, so it's very helpful in, in helping guide physicians in writing prescriptions responsibly. Do you find that that's changed the practice of some of your colleagues? Well, there's still some outliers out there. Um, I think uh, it's important, uh, an education piece uh, for especially primary care physicians to know that it's okay to write for opiates as long as patients are monitored for uh, good benefit, good function, uh, that their moods are, are good, they're not having a lot of side effects, and that they're taking their medications appropriately. Um, I think this has helped tremendously in um, on helping guide physicians to be um, more responsible in their writing practices. And I think the CDC has, has handed down a lot of good um, recommendations since uh, 2016, uh, 
stating that we should have some ceiling doses for the opiates, that if patients still have pain, we don't just keep cranking up the dose, that we really are trying to keep people under uh, 90, preferably 50 morphine milliequivalent of any opiates uh, on a daily basis. Uh, and again, this is for patient safety. And that's a amount that is using one medication, as you mentioned, the morphine equivalent, but giving different ratings for different medicines so that they can all sort of be compared together, apples to apples. That's right. We use morphine as the standard, and we know that certain uh, opiates are a little stronger, super little weaker, and so we kind of standardize them using what's called this morphine mill equivalent. And there's a lot of conversion tables that we have on our, on our cell phones and in offices to use. Now, we've talked so far about trying to reduce the doses of opioids, but that's changed a little bit during the time of coronavirus. How has that changed your goals and your practice of trying to help people monitor their use and reduce the use, particularly during such a stressful time? It is a stressful time. We're all feeling it. And um, one thing, it's important for us clinicians to not... Uh, let patients markedly increase their dose because sometimes patients chemically cope with their opiates to handle their stress, and that's not appropriate treatment. So um, I still, we still continue to monitor our, monitor our patients. Uh, they may be afraid to come to our office, especially our elderly patients on opiates, and so we set up telemedicine conferences. I've somewhat had a policy during COVID not to reduce doses at this time. Uh, but I'm also not really increasing them, knowing that unless there's uh, a serious uh, acute medical problem that's causing pain that needs to be dealt with, that we just kind of keep people where they are for now, touching base every month uh, through telemedicine uh, for their opiate uh, prescriptions to be filled. But well, new starts are difficult because the, we're, our, all volumes are down and patients are afraid to come to the physicians for risk of uh, COVID-19. You mentioned a really important aspect that I think we kind of got dragged in to telemedicine, and it's been such a positive thing. You know, when I think about some of the ways in which the standard practice has had to adapt to no longer having that constant influx of patients to avoid having too many people in waiting rooms, to provide social distancing, but also to allow people to stay at home, it's kind of transformed some of the ways we practice. And there are certain things that really can be done via telemedicine that maybe we didn't even consider before. Have you seen that in your practice? You mentioned for some of the chronic monitoring, this actually could be an appropriate way to do it. I absolutely agree with you. Um, and I think it really has uncovered the fact that telemedicine can be very convenient for all parties involved. Um, and I have to say, I've noticed in my practice that there's a big difference between just talking to a patient on the phone and actually having them up there on the video screen. So I can at least eyeball their face and, and get a feel for the conversation just with those nonverbal cues. Well, and it's helped me get rid of my technology fear factor that I think I had just because, you know, sometimes I'm not the latest, greatest with all of the different gadgets. So it's uh, it's it's forced me to look at things in a different positive perspective with technology. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, I'm going to talk more with Dr. Michael Jaffe about the way in which he does address the use of opioids with his with his patient population, and how this can be done in a really good four-point plan that he'll tell us more about in just a few moments. Stay with us. 
Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, the Kahala Hotel and Resort, and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I've got Dr. Michael Jaffe on the line. He has decades of experience in pain management and is currently helping us in Kailua through Hawaii Brain and Spine and is also associated with Adventist Health Castle Hospital in Kailua. Now, right before the break, we were talking about ways in which telemed has helped all of us. I've certainly gotten more adept at the telemedicine platforms and hopefully will continue to do so. If we were in a situation where everything was going well, we did not have viral pandemics and all of these other stressful situations that people are trying to cope with, what is a good way to look at the use of opioids and potentially reducing that use for patients that really do have a goal of achieving that lower dose and maybe might be having side effects or other reasons why they really have to focus on this? What are some of the tips that you share with your patients? Well, you know, interesting enough, I think some of it starts with prevention. Uh, I know a lot of my surgical colleagues have kind of preset discharge opiate uh, prescribing when patients leave the hospital after a surgery, and they're often kind of take four days for the next 10 days. Whether they need it or not, they get 40 tabs. Um, and what can happen is those pills, if they're not all used, they lie around, which makes it... Uh, you know, 80% of people who get hooked on heroin start with prescription drugs that they might find in the friend's house or their parent's um, medicine cabinet. So kind of behooving surgeons and, and people discharged from the hospital with painful conditions to start on a tapering dose right off the get-go. So they're getting less medications. Uh, and so the, there's less medications fl- just floating around and encouraging patients when they do have extra opiates to Take them to some of the drop spots here on the island. I know CVS has about 10 different drop spots to get rid of and dispose of opiates that are that uh, don't belong uh, lying in people's houses. Uh, something else that can be very helpful preventatively is that anyone who is on a significant dose of opiates to have a nasal Narcan prescription around. This is a life-saving nasal spray that reverses the acute um, um, respiratory repression that we can see with opiates. It can save someone's life if you give them a couple of sprays and call 911 immediately. So prescribing that judiciously to your patients can be quite helpful. Um, I, I think as far as what can we do as, as in general as clinicians to lower the dose of opiates uh, would be, first of all, to talk about some of the universal precautions of writing prescription that we've talked about, touched on a little bit on this program. I think another very important thing is we need to uh, cover more non-opiate treatment uh, um, options for patients, which would include physical therapy, perhaps getting the state uh, to uh, accommodate for acupuncture for all health plans, topical medications, as well as improve access to chemical dependency programs, and remove barriers for some physicians to prescribe medications that can be used for um, uh, medication-assisted treatment to help get people off opiates, like a uh, medication called Suboxone. So this really um, is a combination of efforts to yes. stop from the initial prescribing, if it's not appropriate, or limit the amount that people are given 
before they have a follow-up checkup with their surgeon or something along those lines. You mentioned prescribing the naloxone, the nasal spray, and that's certainly something that has come to light that this is a really good preventative prescription. So if somebody is on a high dose, their family needs to know how to use this. The person themselves may not be able to use it if they're not feeling the effects or not conscious. So this is actually more for the family members or loved ones to kind of get involved. And you highlighted the fact that it's use it, but also call 911. That's right. It, it, its effects last literally for minutes. So it is not a substitute uh, for getting someone to the hospital for uh, more prolonged uh, treatment from overdose uh, and respiratory suppression. That's correct. So you, you give the nasal Narcan and you call 911 at exactly the same time. Same thing you would do with an EpiPen. You give it to somebody who's having a reaction, and you don't just presume that reaction goes away. There may be some consequences, so people still need medical attention. You also talked about something near and dear to me, looking at the non-opioid alternatives. So looking at the acupuncture, looking at other types of modalities, whether it be massage or physical therapy or some other way, even just other medications that can really help folks to achieve what their goal is, which is pain relief. I think all of us have a certain amount of fear of being in regular pain and wanting to have that resolve, but also ways that we can look at this from a more holistic perspective. Do you think that we've improved that in the last couple of years? I know that certain payers have increased their coverage for certain types of certain types of conditions. Have we moved more in that direction? Uh, we have. Um, I think there's a lot more work to do. Um, I think one thing Hawaii could really use is more multidisciplinary pain programs so that patients who are have a tremendous amount of pain to help get them on lower doses of opiates have a place to come to where there's a nurse case manager and a, a pain psychologist and a pain physical therapist and a pain pharmacist and a pain doctor to kind of multi disciplinary handle patients. We set up a program like that at San Diego and Kaiser, and we were able to reduce uh, patients that were over 300 morphine mill equivalents a day uh, by 72% in the medical plan, and um, which we, we just put a little fat feather in our cap. But not only did we reduce the opiate use, but 90% of these patients felt so much better having this high dose of opiates out of their system. They just needed help getting there. We just need to clone that here in the islands. The yeah, right. comprehensive team approach of getting everybody to the table to help go through all the different aspects of this. Because you mentioned that it really requires a pharmacist and a case manager. And, you know, right now we're dealing with a lot of stress and people are just trying to cope dealing with coronavirus. But some people who are dealing with opioid issues on top of that have other additional stresses. How do they function at work? What if they have housing insecurity or food insecurity or may not be able to maintain a steady job? All of these things play a role in the stress response in the body that some people manifest as physical pain. And figuring out a way to handle it from that multifaceted approach really sounds like something we need to put some time and effort into. I 100% agree with you. And I often like to think of pain as really more, more than just chronic pain, but actually chronic suffering because these, every patient has their own individual story, and we need to take that to, into account when we're discussing pain management options for them. So I'm, I'm so glad to hear you mention that, and we certainly could talk about that on a later show. We should, because there are so many different areas that could all be incorporated in 
to trying to address this need. You mentioned also medication-assisted treatment. That's another area where we kind of have to make some more inroads and making it easier for people to participate in that type of program. What exactly is MAT? So medication-assisted treatment is for individuals who have significant uh, opiate use disorder, substance use disorder, which is the preferred term we like to use as opposed to addiction in the medical world because it's less stigmatizing. Um, it allows patients who really have uh, the chemicals altered in their brains. They really just can't stop. And so by giving them medication-assisted treatment, we're kind of using medications that um, are very tight on the opiate receptors but don't give them as much of the high or, or, or kind of have a ceiling effect. And they're something like Suboxone. There's no respiratory depression, so it's very safe to use. I really find these medications very helpful for those individuals who may have a a substance use disorder in their past and yet also have chronic pain. So we kind of use Suboxone uh, for pain management as well as for patients who just need help getting treatment for uh, substance use disorder. And in this case, we call it medication-assisted treatment. Well, we have a lot more that we could talk about for Many more shows. I want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us, with us today on The Body Show. And we will welcome you back so we can talk more about these comprehensive team-based approach ways that we can really address the opioid crisis. Because, no, it has not gone away. And, yes, we still have a ways to go to help out. Thank you for listening to us today. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you right here next week on The Body Show. We'll see you then. Tune in to HPR One Saturday night for the next Hawaii Public Radio Presents Blue Note Virtually Live. This week, it's Beatles tribute band Beat Lele, the musical group combining the timeless music of the Beatles with the familiar sounds of ukulele and cajon. Their performance celebrates the 50th anniversary of the iconic album Let It Be. That's Saturday night at 6 p.m. Tune in to HPR One or listen on the HPR mobile app. 